A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Liverpool beat Everton in the Merseyside derby to boost their title hopes, but leave the Toffees in real doubt as Burnley leapfrogged them to move out of the relegation zone. Elsewhere, we'll be talking about Arsenal's win over Manchester United. A great week for them, but we'll be finding out whether Eric Ten Hag will make a great boss at Old Trafford. We'll also talk about the unfortunate news that Oldham Athletic were relegated from the English Football League and find out how it all happened. And we'll also be talking about our favourite veterans. All that and more on the game. Hello again, welcome back to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Alison Rudd and Tom Clark, and we'll start at the top of the Premier League this week. Liverpool, I'll say it, hanging in the Premier League title race quite literally with a hard-fought win over relegation-threatened Everton in the Merseyside derby at Anfield. It finished 2-0 thanks to second-half goals from Andrew Robertson and Divock Origi. But Alisson, I think we've got to give credit to Liverpool because it was a battling win. Yeah, it was It was a... I don't know. What, I, don't, I don't know the word because it, it was... Discombobulating is what it was. It became clear fairly early on what Everton tactics were and... Uh, it was pantomime football. So whatever you might say about a team struggling at the bottom, what would your approach be if you go to a team that are 50-odd points ahead of you and playing some of the most lovely football in the universe? You're not going to match them. They they saw how Man United fell apart trying to play football against Liverpool. So they, they went for the, let's not play football, let's just annoy them, um, waste time, if we can get nil-nil, wow, wow, that would be amazing in our fight against relegation. But it was it was a sort of exaggerated version of that. So it was it was on one level quite funny. Instead of getting cross when Richarlison kept falling over and clutching various parts of his body, I was laughing because it was just so silly. And I felt sorry for the referee because... You know, you can't go around assuming players aren't really injured. What if they really are? And then you'd, you know, then you'd regret it. So it was, it was odd. And then, but then I, I did, then I did get slightly worried because Liverpool didn't play very well. So you had the stats coming up that Liverpool were sort of eighty-eight percent possession, ninety percent possession, completed passes compared to zero completed passes. So it looked like they were. Uh, expressing their superiority, and yet, as you were watching the game, they weren't. There were, there, I could, I could see passes going astray. I could see miscontrol. I could see bad decision making. I thought it was the worst game I've seen Trent play for quite a while. Um, he just seemed. I don't, I don't want to say he seemed rattled by Everton's tactics. I don't know if they, if that was the reason, but they weren't clicking Liverpool particularly well in that first half. And I saw. Jurgen Klopp go running. I mean, he nearly knocked um, an official over in the tunnel to get to the dressing room so he could sort out what probably must have been a quite superb team talk uh, to, to, to tell the team to remember who they are, I think, more than anything. And to remind them probably that Everton would not be able to keep this up. And and so it and so it transpired. And that, you know, in in that sense, yes, well done, Liverpool, for finding a way. And thank goodness for the existence of half-time team talks, because I think if they, those didn't exist, it might have just sort of degenerated into some sort of ludicrous pantomime and, and might well have been nil-nil. Although I think if, if it carried on like that, there'd have been at least one Everton player sent off. 
And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I, there's been a lot of praise for Everton and people saying if they can show that spirit for the rest of the season, you know, good on them. They were realistic. It's out of the Jose Mourinho playbook or, you know, the Atletico playbook and do what you can to get the result. The Liverpool playbook against Manchester City. <sighs> It was, that was, it was not comparable, Tom. It was not I mean, comparable. You know, just saying. It was not comparable. I mean, this was an exaggerated form of that. Not quite comparable, no, but still, doing what you must. I'm... No, I've nothing. No, and, and I've said I wasn't across. I, it was the right approach, just taken to an extreme. And that extreme backfired because you're not going to get penalties given if you have players like Anthony Gordon was who clearly dive and then that very player is the one who might get a penalty later in the game. What is the referee to do if it's if it's one of those 50-50 decisions? Things weigh in on your brain, don't they? What can I factor in here? And you, you're, the referee must be thinking, if this is his game plan to try and, to try and act, dive, whatever i i don't want to be i don't want to be the one that looks like the idiot who fell for it so that's why but that but surely he didn't with, get the penalty but surely with var he could have like they could he could have given that and then if it had been a blatant dive then he would have booked him and you know ah ah well that's that they're the fine margins that count against the team that have been cheating um i think that's a little bit even know, even, it, even the it, everton richarlison rolling around stuff was pretty strong there allison i mean he was hurt i mean he rolled his ankle we all saw it jamie carragher is screaming for him to get up i mean we can't have this liverpool bias across the media <laughs> allison Rudd. he fell over every time he touched the ball he did he did and anthony gordon has at times dived in games but that doesn't mean shouldn't mean that he's not given a penalty when he is fouled and brought down in the box by Definite John for you. I think it was a penalty yeah Alison? you don't think I thought it was marginal I thought no, it was marginal I, I think it was a I'm, I'm not going to say definite pen just to be deliberately um, you know uh, provocative but I think it was you know a higher percentage than a 50-50 definitely I, I agree with you that it, it did verge on the kind of hysterical, you know, slightly strange, some of the Everton stuff, you know, Jordan Pickford, my mate in the first half, and then Alisson doing it back to him in the second half. It, it was a bit slapstick at times, but I, I, I don't mind it from Everton at all. And I do think, as I, as I just jokingly said to you there, the big teams do it in big games as well. And for Everton, this was a massive game. So I, I don't mind it at all. And I do think that it did rattle Liverpool. And I do also think that it's worth pointing out that some some of those scuffles, I think probably Sadio Mane was lucky not to be sent off as well. Do you not agree? Well, what did he do? Well, slap someone in the face. Didn't slap them, touch them, touch them. Then, but then poke, them. then poke someone in the eye. That's at least two yellows. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know the rules change all the time, but that's, you know, from, from memory, I think if you do that, you've got a pretty good chance of getting sent off. Look, and I... I I do, uh, we've got to expect a higher a higher level of refereeing in big games, haven't we? Than to say, oh well, Everton are playing like this, therefore you shouldn't you shouldn't give them the decisions when they when they probably should get them. You know, they're rolling around, they're being hysterical. Um, therefore, when they are fouled, you probably don't give them a penalty, and you probably don't penalise Liverpool because they're the good guys in the battle of. Football versus anti-football, ah, all this you kind see, of you see, crap. It all goes back to what I said very, very recently on this very podcast about the perception from the officials that the smaller teams are just trying to spoil the game, but when the big teams do it, they don't need to. They don't need these fouls to win the match, so they're not doing anything wrong. It's just a, a mistimed challenge. But you, you're anti-football. You're against the beautiful game. If you play for a club that's lower down the league, relegation threatened, and you try and stop us from seeing the best team do the, the beautiful stuff there was I hate no it. perception I there Hugh. it I was can't a fact stand it. I it was can't a fact. stand it it wasn't, it wasn't a, a perception fact. as Frank Lampard said afterwards I'll ask you to the question does Mo Salah get that penalty if it's him instead of Anthony Gordon yeah I think he does if Mo Salah had dived and been booked and it was exactly the same challenge, I don't think he does. Does he right. get? Does he ever get booked for diving? Proving my point once again, because he's thrown himself all over the place all the time, Mo Salah. Mo Salah does go down easily at times and has done and won penalties There's in usually the past. contact. But he, there is usually contact. <laughs> but there was contact with Anthony Gordon as well. Look, I, I'm, I'm not going as far to say that, you know, in some of the comments that are being made against Liverpool, Liverpool deserve to win the game. Yeah. They did well to win the game. There were times when I was thinking this, this they might come 
unstuck here and fall foul of the, as you say, players like Trent, who've been so exceptional all season, seeming to be off the pace. They did very well to win that game and come through it. What I'm not necessarily sure about is the discussions around the tactics of the two teams and the kind of slight imbalance in, oh, well, wonderful for Liverpool because they're the good guys and also the perception that Everton are the bad guys and therefore Anthony Gordon doesn't get a penalty and Sadio Mane doesn't get sent off. Okay. I'm not bringing morality into it. I'm just explaining I, I'm why not... on a decision that wasn't clear cut, the referee's brain will be processing what has gone before, which is perfectly reasonable. Because until we do get robots on the pitch, that's going to happen. We do have some robots on the pitch. Mm -hmm. Consistently excellent footballers. So there are a few robots in that Liverpool team, you've got to say. They didn't really hit the heights this weekend, but they still won the match. And I do think they deserve credit because it was just one of those awkward fixtures. The Liverpool fans, Liverpool uh, hierarchy, management and players have pointed out that is one of our trickier fixtures. To all the neutrals, we all said, oh, come on, you'll win 7-0, Everton are garbage. And to be honest, it actually played out the way that those familiar with the Merseyside derbies expected. A very tough match. Liverpool came out on top. They deserved it and they keep that pressure on in terms of the title race. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about Divock Origi, really. Six goals in nine games against Everton. When's his statue going up outside Anfield? That, that's the real question. Because there's, there's cult heroes in football, and I love them, love talking about them. And he's, if he wasn't one already, the fact that he just, it's almost like you have to bring him on in a Merseyside derby. We always, we keep talking about, by the way, this front five that Liverpool have, which doesn't include him. Takumi Minamino is definitely not one of them. And the fact that he comes on in a game of that importance and scores, it just is, I love it. Yeah, it's great fun. I'd love to know how good he actually is, though. That's the only problem. Mm -hmm. When you play as the cult hero backup figure in this Liverpool team, no one ever knows how good he is. He just comes on and nods in a few late goals, often and tap-ins. He scored some good goals. I'm not I'm not being, <laughs> again, deliberately uh, provocative about poor Divock's career, but I'd, li I'd like him to go to a mid-table Premier League team and score 20 goals. Uh, as much as the whole, oh, he's a cult figure, where's your statue? Which I thought was a bit tedious from Jamie Carragher, personally. But... Um, <laughs> Will he play a bigger part for the rest of the season? You know, no. one nil at home to Everton. It's a nice, easy throw on, isn't it? When, when they're needing a goal against a stubborn and obdurate Villarreal side, are they going to throw on Divock Origi? Probably not. Let's see. Maybe I'll be proved wrong. Then he can have a statue. The, the thing that I liked about it was that sometimes in football, it's about more than the coaching and the tactics and the training ground. You knew Klopp was going to put Divock Origi on in this game. Because he knows that some things are just mystical in football. He, <laughs> some things are just, you know, he has that superstition. And everyone was like, oh, you know, put Divock on. You need a goal, Divock will come on and he will score because this is his team. I love that. that that's what football's about. Something that you just can't put your finger on. But put it, all right, Alison, would you be sad if Divock Origi left Liverpool? I wouldn't be sad. On a but footballing I'd care, level. I'd care that he got... A nice, he went a to nice a nice home, home. <laughs> <laughs> like a pet that you can't take care of anymore. <laughs> and an owner as lovely as Jurgen, who Fine. has only ever said lovely things about him, and yeah, has even, he... even said he's the best striker in in the Premier League. Oh, it's just, I mean, that, that's why I mean, it's slightly overdone, isn't it? The whole Divock Origi. I'm not going to say that. The narrative word. Oh wait, I have. we do every uh, time. I can't, I can't help time. myself. I can't help myself. It's because Hugh starts talking about statues. It gets gets me going. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, again, it wasn't a great Merseyside derby, but it gave us something to talk about anyway. And those fans in Liverpool and Everton to argue about throughout the week as well. But it does leave Everton in big, big trouble. Let's be honest about it. They are now in the relegation zone. They've been leapfrogged by a Burnley side who now have seven points from the last nine available. They've played a game more, but they are two points ahead of Everton now in terms of that relegation spot. They're out of the bottom three, Burnley, beating Wolves by a goal to nil thanks to Mate Vidra's goal. Let's talk about Burnley. What has changed so significantly since the sacking of Sean Dyche, which so many of us were outraged about? Because not only have they got seven points, it could have been nine points out of nine had Maxwell Corne scored the penalty against West Ham. They are a different side now. To answer your question, absolutely no idea what's changed. Mm. I mean, it's, it is, but it is remarkable. You, you talked there about kind of auras and the mystiques of football. It seems, I don't know whether it's a pressure that came with you know, whether Dash being around, whether he'd been around too long, whether it's just a kind of freeing feeling. Um, I think it, to try and to try and put a, 
a specific on it. Maybe players like Dwight McNeil coming back into the team, very talented player. Um, I think he was excellent um, in the win against Wolves. Vidra, of course, as well, scoring the goal. I think, you know, he's not talking about not particularly Premier League talented strikers in Divock Origi. I don't think Matej Vidra is going to be remembered as one of the greats, but works very hard and took his goal really well. Maybe it's just something as simple as that, freshening up the team a little bit, changing the team, because Dyche was sticking with a very set team. It was kind of similar similar players all the time, similar system, and they'd been playing that for a long, long time. So maybe it's just freshening it up, a freeing of the mind. Who knows? But my, it, my theory is that Michael Jackson plays Thriller and Off the Wall <laughs> in the dressing room, and they all laugh and think, this is hilarious, and go out with no weight on them whatsoever. Well, he does seem very relaxed, doesn't he? Whether whether he plays um, old, old school tunes or not, he, you know, his comments after the game being like, what are you going to do? Oh, I'd like to have eight pints and maybe sit down and watch the Merseyside derby, but I'll probably just chill out with the kids. It, maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it's, you know, the pressures of being in the relegation battle are no longer on Burnley, partly because they sacked Dyche and had lost a few games and everyone like us in the media had said, well, that's it. They'll, they're stuffed now. And maybe that maybe it's as simple as that. Well, I was, I was one of those who thought it was, you know, appalling to, to sack a manager who'd been so successful against the odds but I mean 10 years is a long time it, it might well be they just were bored <laughs> I, said, I mean I'd heard stories of Daesh being aware that he was the same face every season and yeah. trying to you know occasionally saying to the players let's pretend I'm a, <laughs> a new a new manager just to try and inject that sense of you know that, that buzz you get from trying to do something different and but maybe he just couldn't pull it off anymore maybe they just it's just boring. I do think there are some subtle changes. I just think there's a bit more dynamism about yeah. Burnley. I also think that a lot of things came at once in many ways. I think it was a bit of a shock to the system that Sean Dyche left. And I think that jolted the players a little bit. Ashley Westwood's injury mm. has maybe put them, you know, a little bit of togetherness and spirit and holding them in, let's do it for him. And obviously, I think the, the sacking gave them a now or never type feeling like, okay, the, you know, it's quite clear we've got a few games to save this club. And obviously, the messaging is just different, actually. I, I, I also think they try and play a little bit more in all the games that I've watched them. It's a nice goal. Yeah, they do. I mean, they they and and look, Burnley fans are here screaming, saying, "Hold on a minute, we've always tried yeah. to play, blah blah blah." But you're trying to play more than you played before. That's my yeah. point. And I love Connor Roberts, a right back. I think he's a little bit more dynamic. I think Josh Brownhill's got that dynamism about him as well. Dwight McNeil, I like just in terms of that possession. I think he he makes some good decisions in his short passing game, long passing game, not so much, tries to bring out, you know, the 70-yard balls and all that stuff. I still think he's a, he is a talented player with, with stuff to learn. But I never felt this Burnley side was actually that bad. I've had a long-running, throughout the entire season, argument with my mates that Burnley will be all right, they'll be fine, they'll be fine. All based on the fact that they draw so many games. Oh, look, if they'd only scored three extra goals, they'd have six extra points. They would have never been in here. You know, they're not that far away from being out of it. So now I'm honestly a huge Burnley supporter every single... I'm literally working yesterday. I was at a rugby match and I saw the Burnley score. And I was like, yes! <laughs> and, you know, I had a feeling they'd beat Wolves, to be perfectly honest. But now you look at the games that they've got coming up. Watford away. I mean, come on. They've got to win that game. They have to win that game. Villa at home, easy four points as far as I'm concerned in terms of Burnley's games. They, they don't need to fear anyone because actually the last three games, West Ham United, a draw, but then Southampton, the win, and obviously the win against Wolves. I mean, these are decent sides mm. that they've got their points against. It's not like they had an easy run here. I'm, lo I'm absolutely loving this podcast, Hugh, because it makes me realise how much time you've spent with me. Firstly, we started off defending the anti-football brigade, and now <laughs> you're a Burnley fan. I can't believe it. It's oh, absolutely but great. Like I said, they're playing better football. You know, oh, I've, I've, I see. I, they've won you round. I, I have think. enjoyed it. I, I actually think one of the interesting things that they've sort of tweaked um, was that Valt Veghorst came in in the Chris Wood role and everyone was like, oh, he's going to be an improvement and he's going to be better. And we're going to play exactly the same way that we did with Chris Wood. And then it was a, it was it it became quite obvious that it, it wasn't really working for Veghorst. They were like, we need a plan B. We can still cross it into the box if he's in there. But what else can we do? And actually, I just think the other players have stepped up, especially Corne, who I think is not a great player, but actually quite an impactful player because of his speed, the, the fact that he can stretch def 
defences. And then also, I have to give special mention, Nathan Collins, who seems to be on a one-man mission to keep Burnley in the Premier League. And that is an, an enforced change in many ways because of Ben Mee's injury. So there have been tweaks um, to the, the, the players out there on the pitch, a couple of them enforced. I just think they're, they're a different side at the moment. They're looking like a, a mid-table team. I think it's really bad news for Everton, the way Burnley play. And the real fairy tale will come when on the last day against Newcastle, Dwight McNeil actually scores a goal because he's had more <laughs> shots than anyone else without actually scoring. And imagine if he decides to score then. He will finally score one of those screamers where he cuts yeah. it off the wing and curls they're it getting the closer. They are getting Arjun, closer. Arjun Robinson style I can see it now but the thing you're missing from this uh, narrative I've said it once I'll say it again <laughs> Steven Gerrard's going to decide the relegation battle two games Burnley play Villa twice well, and, yeah. and at the top of the table he play, he's, he's, he's going to decide the whole thing he's just sat there maybe that's why Villa have been so poor lately Stevie G's just like wait lads wait I know a dramatic ending I know how to pull it off I'm going to decide this whole league just you watch but yeah as you say Hugh two games against Burnley he can save his old mate Frank Lampard and Everton, if he wants to. Yeah, I looked at that and actually thought Burnley are getting four points from those two mm. games, actually. Villa have been very, very poor. I'm sure we're going to speak about them uh, in the coming weeks. Everton have Chelsea next, then Leicester. I'm not going to go too far through the fixtures because I think this is very much a week-to-week. You know, <laughs> I actually think the fact that Everton have dropped into the relegation zone can have a hugely detrimental effect. The mood just drops completely. Instead of you holding on, hanging out every single game, you know, desperate to cling on to um, your position outside the relegation zone. Now you're in it. Everyone's just, and, and I've been listening to the radio this morning. It's just Everton fans. I never thought we'd get relegated. It's almost as if they, they got relegated uh, this weekend. Um, do you think that will affect the Everton players? They're bound to, yes. But that, I mean, it's it's like they're trying. The one hope I think is that they did buy into. See, I I said when Lampard was appointed, this, this is not the right man for a relegation battle. He doesn't have the CV for it, and I don't think I still don't think he does. But the fact that he briefed them to play the way they did at Anfield. And they all bought into it. I mean, they bought it into it slightly sarcastically, I suspect. I mean, they overdid it, but they bought into it. And that implies that they're listening to him. And if he's going to have a different plan of action for each of those fixtures and try and devise a way to get points, I doubt they've given up yet. I mean, there was energy for 80 minutes in that game. Um, they, they, they weren't strolling around, you know, shrugging, oh, it's too late now. So I think... I don't think we're going to see them spiral out of control. I think it could... I, my prediction when I go through each of those fixtures is that it ends up that Everton go down on goal difference. I think I think they'll cling on, but it won't be quite enough. We'll be talking, of course, more about that relegation battle still to come. Uh, we'll talk about the race for a place in the top four as well. We'll check in on Olden Athletic after their relegation from the Football League. We'll talk a little bit about Eric Ten Hag and our favourite veterans as well. Stay with us on the game. It was a very good week for Arsenal. Much needed back-to-back -back wins. The first one against Chelsea in midweek, of course. And now Manchester United at the weekend. A 3-1 win at the Emirates Stadium. I've got to say, it felt like a game which could have gone either way for the most part. I actually didn't think Manchester United were that bad, but also, strangely, Arsenal deserved to win. I mean, it was just one of those strange games. My first question is actually which team defended more poorly, Alison? You were there. It felt like it was the mistakes that were going to decide the game. It was a, it was a bonkers match. And uh, I, was, I was shocked, actually, because I think on the previous time I appeared on this podcast, I said I had a sneaking suspicion that Man United might sneak through and steal the fourth place simply because you can't trust Arsenal, you can't trust Spurs. And then I'm watching them in the flesh when, you know, this is, they haven't got long left. This is the time to make a push. I thought Arsenal were poor, but I thought United were abysmal, absolutely abysmal. Throughout the season, because they have so many good players, there's always something you can see it when United play and think, oh, that's good. He played quite well. I was impressed with Cristiano Ronaldo at the Emirates, I have to say. I don't know how, as an individual, when you've got a whole stadium, clapping in the seventh minute because you've lost your baby son you keep going I mean he's gone hugely up in my estimation just just to be able to cope with that moment scored a goal might have scored another goal 
his attitude looked good. But I was completely thrown by the comparison of the two dugouts. You've got Arteta, who continually looks like a manager who's in charge of a team that are yet to glue together. That he's, He looks like a manager who's got a lot of work to do. It's a lot of youth, a lot of pieces of a puzzle that don't quite work. And he wants to show that he has faith in them, that he's trying to build a family. If he's picked you, he doesn't care if you make a mistake. You're with him now. Uh, he over-celebrates everything. He never stops shouting, encouraging. He's just total ball of, of energy and completely acts like someone who feels it as much as the f- biggest fans feel it. And and that's as a as an Arsenal fan, I imagine that's quite lovely to watch. And then in the other dugout, it's not an excuse that Ranić is called interim manager because he's supposed to have a long term role at the club. He's he doesn't do anything at all. And post match, he he was asked, I think some of the most difficult questions I've ever heard at a press conference, because there's no barrier there. You don't feel the sense that you can't. You just can't pick his team apart and he, he, he doesn't mind. He doesn't care. He doesn't defend the plays. He doesn't defend the club. He doesn't defend the tactics. He doesn't look forward. It was awful, awful sense of why, why have you got on the outside all these former players who claim to love this club so much, dissing it. I mean, it was the turn of... Um, Paul Scholes at the weekend saying you know, he, he didn't think Jesse Lingard would mind if he told the world that Jesse Lingard had told him the dressing rooms are shambles. Well, I think he might mind, don't mm-hmm. you? And then that's put to Ranić and he goes, oh, well, it's not too bad. I mean, it's, it's appalling, absolutely appalling. And I'd get one of those ex-players for no money at all, just to go in, be in charge for the last few matches, just so that they all play with a bit of passion. I don't I do not see that players are constantly criticized for being too posh to push, but they've got nobody reminding them of their job, geeing them up, finding a clever way of getting them all to jail or go for it. It was utterly dispiriting. And but extra dispiriting because I don't think Arsenal are anywhere near the finished article after their blip of three losses. Chelsea gave them a few goals, played badly. They won that one. They won this one because Man United just aren't at it and they don't have leadership. There may as well have been nobody in that dugout. Very harsh on my mate Mikel. I thought that was going to start with a, well done Mikel, you listened to the game podcast, Alison. You know, a few weeks ago you said he's got no plan B got no change in tactics he's outcast Tavares at left back so what does he do he listens to you brings in Tavares brings him back into the team he scores goes back to those two holding midfielders brings in El Nenny looks like a you know great stopgap for no Thomas Partey and Eddie Nketiah's up front scoring goals plan B he's cracked it he's a genius he's progressing all the time well done Mikel <laughs> come on those, come on. Were, those were the good they points. were good, but they are good points. Oh, I'm, I'm being, I'm, otherwise didn't play very well. No, but you, a few weeks ago, you were quite rightly saying that he shouldn't have cast him out into the, you know, into the wilderness, and that then moving your key midfielder to left back as a solution. He listened to you. He, he changed it up. He put Jaka back in midfield, scores a goal. For, and I've played. praised, I've praised his managerial. Did okay, demeanour? Just, I have pra- no, I have just praised check. it. I have praised it, but they're not. They're not suddenly. No, they're not. Some, I, I'm, I'm not saying. I'm going to say. Oh, they're definitely going to get fourth. I'm not I don't saying. Think it's definite. I'm not saying they've cracked it, but I'm say, all I'm saying for Arteta and for this young squad that, as you say, is still not the finished article. It's a good sign that they can go through that bad run and lose those games against Brighton and others, and then come back and beat Chelsea and Manchester United in games like this, where as Hugh teed it up, it could have gone any way with decisions and various other factors. Man United could have somehow bizarrely got a point here or even won the game in other circumstances. So for Arsenal to come through it, I think is a quite a unifying factor for them and will be very important in the run-in for fourth place. No, absolutely, absolutely. And credit where it's due. And El Elneny, for example, last started a game, before the Chelsea game, he last started a game December 2nd, played very well against Chelsea, played very well against Manchester United and said afterwards that he loves the club it, it, he'll, he's out of contract but he'd love to stay That's and he likes the manager who makes him feel great and then you know, you've know you got Granite Jacker who went public only 10, 10, 11 days ago saying that the, the chasm between him and the supporters after that you know when he he had the captaincy taken off him and the fans jeered him when he came off the pitch against Crystal Palace in 2019 
and his own father told him to leave the club and he decided to listen to Arteta instead. And so he did stay. And then you had the beautiful moment where he scored a wonder goal and he's blowing kisses to the crowd. They're blowing kisses back to him. And you think, oh, that chasm that will never mm-hmm. heal. It has been healed. Yeah, I just think there are some factors in there for which Arteta deserves credit. And they're good. In, they're all in good particularly things, yes. in comparison to the quite right um, points you've made about Ranić and the absence of kind of man management. I think I just think there's some things in there that Arteta continues to do, continues to show improving uh, man management skills. Um, to go alongside his kind of tactical acumen. So, positives for Arsenal. We're going to come back to what you said about Ralph Rannick and the difference between the two managers. Let's round off Arsenal, though, because I thought Nketiah, who you mentioned, Saka, Erdegaard, Smith-Rowe with a spark once again. I think, you know, the difference was probably talent in 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 across the board. I know Cristiano Ronaldo is an extreme talent and, you know, that he was in the Manchester United team. But actually, I just think player for player, Arsenal had more quality and that was the, the the deciding factor in the game for me but talent that knows what it's doing as well that's yeah, been given yeah, a specific yeah. and throughout the season that you know knows what it's doing and also I mean Bakayo Saka taking two massive penalties in two massive games after missing one for England fair place on that is pretty impressive I'd say youngest player to score back-to-back penalties in consecutive games obviously mm. in the Premier League I think if that is a, a record then it's a record, I guess. Um, yeah, okay, back to Ralph. <laughs> Listen, Ralph Randnick, I said a, a while ago that there was no point in him being there and that Michael Carrick should have been put in charge until the end of the season. This is probably four or five games ago because he was getting absolutely nothing from the players. They didn't like his tactics. It was absolutely pointless in being in the role. But I do think he's got a job to do at Manchester United upstairs where if, if this two-year consultancy comes to fruition I, you know he has done the job of building helping to build football clubs before quite successfully but I do think I, I, I just want to defend him in in the respect that he's the only person at Manchester United who said anything um, of realism in the last few months he's the only person that said yeah these guys aren't very good he's the only person that says we need 10 new players the only person that said we're six years behind Liverpool all the ex-players you know the phrase this is Manchester United seems to mean that trophy should just be delivered to you know Old Trafford you know all wrapped up and 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 gift wrapped it just you know it's just not the case this is Manchester United being a once great club is not enough he's the only person who has suggested that there are there's lots of work to do around the club to get them back to where they need to be Ole Gunnar Solskjaer never said that never said that and everyone loved him and it was you know I say everyone lots of people loved him because he's a club legend but there was no realism there it was always going to end in disaster and yes he doesn't make the right noises in terms of going out on a Saturday and motivating the players I completely understand that he doesn't do anything on the touchline these players don't listen to a word he has to say to be perfectly honest I mean but then again, I, I look at it and I'm saying, well, these players aren't hopefully going to be at Manchester United anyway. I'm desperate to get to the end of the season. I'm not just a Burnley fan. I now support West Ham <laughs> and Wolves because if Manchester United are eighth, and I say this now as a Manchester United fan, I will be delighted. Absolutely delighted. I don't want European football next season I j- because obviously you need a bigger squad and I want as many of these players sold as possible and I'm very happy to have a small squad next year and focus on the Premier League I think we're stumbling across what's really happening here double agent Ralph undercover this whole time he's gone in to speak some harsh truths that haven't been spoken before just as you said Hugh he's gone in to lay the groundwork for super coach Eric Ten Hag to come in and revive them by making them crap absolutely crap (laughs) and he's gone in to make sure that they finish outside of the European places so they can have a clean run next season at the league it's genius. Team Ralph all the way. Well, he's doing a very good job of that. He is, absolutely. But I also, I'm being slightly um, stupid there, as always. <laughs> uh, but I think Hugh's right. And Johnny and I discussed this very briefly in our quick chat about Eric Ten Hag uh, on Thursday's show. While Hugh, I presume you were out celebrating in your Holland kit excitedly about the Yeah, yeah, manager. yeah. I heard. <laughs> um, but we, we both said that I think it would be it really interesting if Ranić wasn't kind of cast out on the back of this kind of short interim spell that he was now okay if your kind of coaching acumen isn't quite as what it used to be in terms of on the touchline and some of those things Alison you've criticised him for but now what you're great at is building clubs now go and actually do it with Ten Hag in the coaching role I think that would be fascinating to see and it would be a shame if Manchester United wasted that because as Hugh said he's one of the few people who's spoken truth to what 
the massive issues are rather than just coming out with easy lines about what a great massive club they are he's he's been honest and I don't think any any Manchester United fan or pundit disagrees with the things that he said I mean every football fan wants that manager on the touchline who's remonstrating and getting the crowd up and in, in inspiring the players by their antics on the touchline because we've seen so many big managers do it so now apparently you can't be a great coach unless you do it the, the players at Manchester United are not good enough they're not good enough I don't know, you know, I know people say that they've still got a bit of a squad there. I don't see it. We've, we've been through it many times. I won't, I won't go over it again. But actually, I just don't think many of them, I mean, people say good players. It's all, it's all, it's all relative, isn't it? You know, people who support a team that doesn't have a squad with as many good players as Manchester United turn around and say they've got a good squad. People that support Liverpool and Manchester City, how many players would you take? How many players would you take to Liverpool from Manchester United? None. Not even Ronaldo. No, he's old. They've got Divock Origi. They don't need Ronaldo. <laughs> and this is my point. You know, if you wouldn't even take Ronaldo from Manchester United, why, I don't understand why people expect them to be getting results. There I mean, are other just... reasons why, as a Liverpool fan, you wouldn't take Cristiano yeah, Ronaldo to Anfield, I, I, I to be meant, fair. I, I meant as a pure talent, you know. I, I just don't see how Manchester United are that good. They are of this. I mean, it's a terrible end to the season, but it was a it was an even worse start to the season. We forget how bad they were under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. They've just been dreadful. But the, it's not. Ju- I'm not. I can't criticise Ralph. Just having a go at Ralph for his lack of clear, uh, attractive demeanour in his dugout. Although I do think it's not great. Look, I mean, that's fine if that's his style. That's fine. But it's afterwards with with the questions. He, he was so fatalistic and didn't seem to even know the team very well or care about the team very well. So if if he's staying at the club, he has to care. It's all very well being honest and speaking the truths that no one else dare speak. But if he doesn't care, what's the point of having him there? Are you having a go at him for being German here? Is this, is this his demeanour, <laughs> the fact that he comes across as cold? You think he has no heart? This is unbelievable, Alison Rudd. I can't believe these accusations are going out towards Ralph Rennick. You he's know exactly just, what I mean. He's just, he's just calm. He's just calm. There's so many people around Manchester United have not been calm for so long that it just seems so strange that there is a calm person at the club. Because the thing is, there is no pressure on him in that role. So why would he be running up and down the touchline, screaming and throwing his arms in the air? He's an interim manager until the end of the season. His job's to get the team through the next three games. That's not the pressure on his role. So why would, you know... Exactly. If you're interim, you have short-term target... And he's not even doing that. No, but he knows the short-term target is impossible, well, it, as well, we all it do. It wasn't impossible, it is. It, it was always not has given been, who they're impossible. up against, given how flaky Spurs and Arsenal have been, are, will always be. It, is very, it was very possible with the right approach as the interim United to fourth. I know you say you don't want it, but come on, you do really. No, absolutely not. Why? No. Attracting... Play. If you're going to clear out players, you need to attract players. No, Manchester United need to build. They need to build very gently. They need to build. That's it. They need to build very gently and take the long-term approach. Just think about getting better. Because world beaters and players who are like desperate to be in the Champions League, I won't play for a club who's not the champion. We don't need those players at the moment. We're not going to win the Champions League for years, decades probably. There's no point thinking about that. Just get better. Incremental steps. I've spoken about the players that we need before. None of them play for teams that are even really in Europe at the moment. So that's where I think Manchester United are. James Ward-Prowse, anyone for Man United instead of Declan Rice? <laughs> I, I was thinking it yesterday. I was like, I mean, why, De- De- why have we never talked about De- it? Declan we've, Rice we've is not going to Man United. Come no, on. he's probably not. But James Ward-Prowse could, couldn't he? I don't think he wants to leave the South Coast. No, he probably doesn't. But what a, what a player. I know we're not talking about Southampton, but I was briefly contemplating it yesterday. In there terms are... of talking about those players, Hugh, that you're, you're, mm. you're, you're speaking about. I was also thinking about it, Tom. Isn't that interesting? I was thinking, what would James Ward-Prowse do if Gareth Southgate said, you are my starter in midfield if you play for a bigger club? I think he'd probably ring his agent and go speak to Tottenham, Arsenal and Man United. And he see wouldn't who, leave. Who... I don't think he'd leave. He wouldn't leave. Think? No, he wouldn't leave. He wouldn't no, leave. Come on. He he's had a great, he, but the, he's he's at the stage now, surely, with his club where he could he could leave Southampton for a club of that ilk to challenge himself and could still be considered a Southampton legend. I think. Yeah, absolutely, he could. He's but, at that point in his career with yeah, what but, he's done. He's twenty-seven. He's captain. 
got great experience. He's now played international football. I'm not. I'm not. For any Southampton fans listening, I'm not trying to push James Ward-Prowse leaving Southampton as a thing. I just find it fascinating that when he's putting in performances like he did um, against Brighton to get them a draw, been so consistent, so experienced. He's got a good kind of the uh, S Housery about him as well at times for a little cute little looking lad. Um, <laughs> he, well, he does, doesn't he? He kind of he's got the wind up about him, and I think. For any of those teams, and for Manchester United in particular, he would instantly improve them. Great, great delivery from set pieces, goals, everything. There are many players in the Premier League who would improve Manchester United. <laughs> in fact, you could go through the substitutes bench. But would you be happy? Premier League would you clubs. be happy with James Ward-Prowse? Yeah, I would. I, th- I think he's a good player. Ah, you see, and he won't go if you're not in the Champions League. Da da. He would. No, he wouldn't. He would. No, because the only reason he'd go to Manchester United is Gareth Southgate told him he had to go to a club that was no, playing. He'd go because he'd get an extra ninety thousand pounds a week. He would still go. No, that'd be the only reason, and I still yeah, don't think that would he'd be go. that would be the only reason. But I still think it's a good enough reason. You'd be like, all right, five year deal. They're giving Marcus Rashford an improved contract. They're giving Bruno an improved contract. I put in three good seasons. They'll up my wage by fifty grand a week. You know, it's fine. Come on, it's still a career. I mean, he would still go, but I don't think it would improve his his actual playing ability at all. I think Southampton's the right place for him. He might as well carry on. I'm sure they're going to give him a contract improvement as well at the end of the season. Um, listen, very quickly, before we finish talking about, I don't know why, but we, we spoke about Manchester United for a while. We weren't meant to. Um, I still think they played one of their better games in recent times. They know now that Eric Ten Hag will be their new manager, so maybe some are out to impress. Our Northern football correspondent, Paul Hurst, joins us now on the Game Podcast. Hursty, I loved your tweet about Manchester United where you just said, pathetic again. But I still think they could have won the game. But actually, secondly, you've done a deep dive on Ten Hag. You can read it on the Times app at the moment. It's called The Making of a Manchester United Manager. You have travelled to the Netherlands to find out more what is the most intriguing thing you've uncovered? Just came across really clearly from everyone that I spoke to that he's a he's a really um, headstrong, um, focused guy who is very stubborn as well. You know, it's either his way or the highway. Um, I spoke to players who played um, under him at various clubs and coaches who have worked with him. You know, he has a very clear plan of what he wants from his team and his players. If you don't conform to that plan, if you don't believe in him, um, he will quite ruthlessly cut you out. Um, and that is what United need, I think, at the moment. But the question is, obviously, whether the players will listen. Because, as we know, there are several strong presences in that dressing room who haven't always um, agreed with the manager's plans. And, you know, they've... Um, They've sulked, you know, let's be honest, they've sulked and it's affected the, the performances. So they've got to really get on board with Ten Hag, otherwise, you know, they'll they'll be cut out uh, and the club have got to back Ten Hag and his, his approach as well, I think. It's interesting you say that because I know you wrote a piece where you, you were very um, positive about his qualities as a manager, but does he have the CV and the charisma to impress players of the calibre that Manchester United have and would hope to have. It seems to me like he's sort of, in an academic sense, a respected manager, but, you know, his his CV isn't that astonishing, really. I just wonder how players at the top of their game feel about him. Do you get the sense that he would have that force of personality to, to win over players on big salaries who think they're the best in the business. That's the challenge, isn't it? You know, Ajax are a big club in Holland, but they're not uh, an elite, you know, a top level, top, uh, you know, they're not on the, on the same, you know, in the same group as Man United in terms of their overall size, their media exposure, etc. So, yeah, that will be a challenge. And like you say, he's a good coach, um, but United have had good coaches in the past and, you know, they've failed, haven't they? So, I think he is, people think he's not got a lot of charisma just because of what they see from him in front of the cameras. It's fair to say that he's not at his most comfortable in front of the cameras in press conferences, particularly when speaking English, although he has been having extra lessons recently. But I think behind the scenes, he's, he's a lot more open and there's a lot more kind of arm around the shoulder um, tactics going on behind the scenes and he is more approachable behind the scenes than he, he is in press conferences, etc. Um, so I think that will help. You know, he's, he's not worked with players who have egos, uh, an ego the size of Cristiano Ronaldo before, has he? That's, that's the, 
that will be the test whether whether Ronaldo gets on board with what he's saying uh, or whether Ten Hag just says no I, I want rid of him if he's not going to if he's not going to accept my orders etc so that'll be the challenge whether they accept his his actual you know the way he wants to play my other observation on this is that Ajax are an incredibly well run machine and they they, mm. they have a model where they accept their eye catching players will be sold but they have lots of players in the system through their excellent academy to come through to replace them. They sort of yeah. know before anyone else, oh, he's going to get sold. Mm. And they don't get worried about it because th- that's their model. They know it happens. It's so well oiled and it's a very specific way of running um, a football business. That is the opposite of Manchester United. <laughs> I just I just don't know if he would... F- I, I struggle to see how he'd be comfortable in a com- complete polar opposite situation. Yeah, you're right. These the Ajax structure has worked well for the last few years, hasn't it? Van der Sar is a chief exec, has been he's a very intelligent guy. He's responsible for quite a lot of the the marketing um, uh, deals that they've they've done and, and the commercial success they've done as well. And he's a football man. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but you know he gets the game. He's won a lot, you know, so he gets it. And then Marco Mars was a was very good in the, in the players that he recruited. So that was, it was part of a very good structure at Ajax. And like you said, the, the behind the scenes at Man United over the last few years, it's been, it's been chaos, hasn't it? You know, they've, they've flip-flopped from one manager to another, giving him more responsibility with, uh, giving the manager more responsibility than with transfers, then less responsibility. It's not, they've not had a consistent structure there. So certainly before Ten Hag took over, yeah, he agreed to sign the contract. He he wanted to make sure that he was he would have a in his in the transfers. I think United were hoping that he would you basically be there to coach. You know, you coach the team, we uh, we sign the players, etc. But Ted Hag was like, no. <laughs> Having seen all the players that that United signed over the last few years, that haven't been very good. He wants a uh, he wants a big input in that. You know, he's recommended players to the board um, and to the recruitment team. You know, this is these are the players that I um, I want to sign. So he will he will have a lot of power in that respect, which is fair. I think you know it's his team. You know, this is he wants to mould the team in his image. So he wants the players who are right to fit. You know, his style of play. You know, Nemanja Matić wouldn't fit in that team, would he? You know, he's a Jose Mourinho player, which is why he's going. So he wants um, he wants his players to his style of play. Did you get a sense, given everyone that you've spoken to, that he will be a good fit and a success at Old Trafford? That's the thing that I want to learn most about as a fan, to be perfectly honest. Do you think this person is going to be a successful coach at Manchester United? I understand all the other stuff that needs to be improved away from that first team. And of course, he needs better players. But is he the right person? There's a part of me as well that is almost delighted to hear he's not going to be great with the media and, and probably not going to have great English either. You know, it's one of those, isn't it? It's, it's off the back of a Donald Trump. You just want a boring politician. You want it all settled down. No more big headlines. That's what I want at Manchester United. As dull a club as possible in the in the near future would suit me. I don't know. I, I quite like good headlines as a journalist. Call me a fashion. <laughs> but, Selfish. But I know what you mean. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, I just want an easy life too. Um, but no, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, just a bit of bit of calmness, you know, a bit of bit of consistency, a bit of you know, just a, a United winning matches and you know just plodding along and being successful rather than being um, rather than you know having this you know, these inquests every few weeks about why it's gone wrong, etc. That I'm sure that's what United fans fans want. Um, in terms of whether he'll be a success or not, I, I genuinely don't know. I, I genuinely think it depends on those first uh, few signings that he, he gets in through a door, whether he gets a good centre-half, a striker, at least one central midfielder. And it depends on whether, as I said before, whether the players buy into his... His methods, because they're gonna some players, some United players, and I know what a few of them are like. Will look at his CV, particularly his playing CV, and say, "Right, this guy's just won one Dutch Cup, and that's it. You know what's he done in the game? And I've won X, Y, and Z. That's obviously not a very professional way to look at your job, but you know I know that's how some United players would think. So it's you know they've got to 
you know, they've got to buy into. I know I keep saying, but they've got to buy into what he's offering, and you know that that will be that will determine whether he's successful or not. Eric Ten Hag, the making of a Manchester United manager, is available for you right now on the Times app. Make sure you check it out. Paul Hurst, thank you for joining us on the game. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There was unfortunate news this weekend as Oldham Athletic were relegated from the English Football League for the first time after their defeat by Salford City in a game that was interrupted by a supporters on-pitch protest against the club's owners after 116 years of league football for the Boundary Park Club as well. It means they're the first Premier League team to drop into non-league since it was created in 1992. Adam Millington has written on the issues in the Times this weekend. Talk us through the day, if you like, um, at Boundary Park at the weekend. How would you describe how it went? It was a very weird feeling going into the start of the game. I think in the concourses, it was most people feeling numb. I think there were very few who thought maybe there was a possibility they could still stay up. But the rest had accepted that this was going to happen and there were murmurs about possible protests and, and those sorts of things. And it was just... As the game started to go on, Oldham had a penalty, which he scored. There was, you know, ruled out goals. Salford scored, and it ended up Salford 2-1. And then it's like a lot of these games are at the end of the season. You've got people checking the phones and seeing that Stevenage are winning and then Barrow are winning. And then it was after Sutton missed a penalty uh, to, to equalise against Barrow that it really kicked off. And you started hearing people who said, I, I just had a text from someone in this stand someone's going to go over, something's going to happen here. And it did. Oldham had a free kick in the opposition half. The ball was down on the pitch. And, and the second the ball was placed down by Nicky Adams, the club captain, two jumps over the Hardings. Some came from the other stands. And then everybody went on. And then the, the game ended up being finished at a later point in time. So so how, how did that happen? How was everyone ushered out of the stadium eventually? And how long did it take? Um, yeah, so there were lots on the pitch. There must have been hundreds there. After the initial few, some had ran off. Uh, but lots stayed. They were fancying down on the pitch. And once they'd announced that the game was abandoned over the Tannoy, it was a bit like at Leighton Orient a few years back when people thought, right, the game is abandoned now. We are going to go. The the owners were not there. So they were thinking, we might as well go now. The game has been abandoned. Some still stayed, though, and there are probably a couple of dozen fans. And the sprinklers got turned on on the pitch. That eventually cleared the pitch entirely. And then there were fans who got into the fans' bar on the other side of the stadium once they'd left. They started seeing corner flags being put out, nets being put out. There was no communication from the club. But eventually, the game did recommence. The last uh, 12 minutes or so we played, it ended in the 2-1 Salford win and, and condemned Oldham to relegation. But it was eventually cleared. It took a very long time. Off the top of my head, it was over an hour or around that sort of length. It just kept seeming that whenever you were checking on social media and those sorts of things, that even after I'd left, which I'd probably left 25 minutes after the game had been abandoned, 
because I thought, you know, this game's been abandoned here. There's nothing we can do. Uh, I, I might as well go home and, you know, start writing on something. And then you start seeing that the fans are still on there. They're still on there. Eventually, it was cleared. The game did finish. But for those who were wanting to watch the finish of the game, uh, you had fans in that fans bar. Stewards took advertising boards, put them up, blocking the windows <laughs> of the fans bar so they couldn't watch. So it was a behind-closed-doors game. So for those fans there, they were looking through the little cracks in between the advertising boards to watch <laughs> the last 10 minutes or so of the club in, in the Football League. You've written about the anger of some of those uh, fans. How do you describe their feelings now relegation has been confirmed? Um do you think the protests are going to continue in some way, shape or form? Because the owner, Abdallah Lemsagam, I imagine would deny any wrongdoing. But I think this might land squarely at his feet. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I would personally say that the whole thing lies squarely at his feet. It's been four years of, of turmoil off the pitch and on it for all. Do we know going from being a, a relatively stable with not a lot of money league one club who would be bottom half of the league one table they they hadn't finished top the half since 2008 09 um and then protests started to happen a bit more after covid because you know so many things with the allegations of unpaid wages david wheater being frozen out a stand being closed um, unpaid debts you know debts being called in by others threats of administration those sorts of things they then subsided once John Sheridan was brought in. You know, the message from the fans who were protesting was that we want this club sold. And Abdal Lenskamp said that he is up for selling the club. They subsided because John Sheridan was brought in. Fans were like, right, we need a club here that's in the football league to sell. So we're here to back the players. I think now that has happened. There are two more games left this season. It's anyone's guess what will happen with them. I can tell you that it's Tranmere away. On Saturday is the next one, which is always a, a very lively affair. That's probably Oldham's biggest grudge match in the league. And there's a big grudge the other way with Tranmere. So there'll be big police tendencies there. I don't think that will end well. And then it finishes at Crawley at home a week on Saturday. And, and that as well, I think the protest will carry on. The focus now will be on finding an owner. The, you know, Adal Lampskin will be losing a lot of money going into the National League. He'd lose out on a lot. So we'll be finding someone new that there have been talks of buyers. I've heard personally about a few different ones who've wanted to. Most of the ones that I've heard of have pulled out, but there's a there's a consortium who are wanting to buy. It just depends. There, there are issues with the ground being owned by someone else and, and that needing to be sorted out. But I think these protests will carry on until the ownership's gone. You know, now relegation has happened. There will be one focus for the fans from what from what I can see. So, so at this point, just finally, are you positive or how positive are you about the future of Oldham Athletic? It's a very difficult one because I think if you look at a lot of National League clubs, there are many teams that go down and come back up, but the National League is an incredibly competitive league and you have your likes of Wrexham and those sorts of teams who will be fighting to get out of the National League and, and back into the Football League. It's a very hard one to get out of. And if you're adjusting from being a, a football league club for 116 years, when you've got used to the additional finances of the football league and those sorts of things, off the pitch, it'll take a lot of adjusting. You know, Southend United this season have shown that you can go down and really struggle in the league below. It, it's happened time and time again. You know, Stockport County went down and, and how long have they been in the National League for going back out? Notts County, a massive club struggling. So who knows if there's a change in ownership, if there's increased investment, maybe, maybe I might see Oldham as a team who could come back up into the Football League. But as it stands, I just cannot see a way that this current team, which is in such turmoil, both on and off the pitch, will make its way back into the Football League when there are so many other strong sides in the National League. Adam, thank you very much uh, for, for giving us that rundown on Oldham and we will see what happens in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure you'll keep us posted in the Times. You can read uh, from Adam Millington in the Times app right now. Thank you so much.
Before we go on the game podcast, there was a special moment in Spain this weekend. Real Betis won their first Copa del Rey since 2005. It was a penalty shootout victory over Valencia. It means the Real Betis boss, Manuel Pellegrini, remember him? He lifted a trophy for the first time since 2016, the League Cup with Manchester City. But the result was notable for a Spanish football legend, the former Spain winger, Joaquin. He's 40 years old. He's had wonderful longevity, illustrated by the fact that despite spending two years of his career in Italy, he has made more appearances than any other outfield player in La Liga. He's overtaken the legend of Real Madrid, Raul. He's closing in on the former Barcelona goalkeeper Andoni Zubizarreta as well. He could be the greatest of all time. And it, it got me thinking about football's greatest ever veterans. Tom Clark. I bet you never, ever thought you'd hear Joaquin to Dean Windass as a kind of, <laughs> as a kind of sidestep. But here it is, ladies and gentlemen, on the game podcast. Um, 2007, 2008, Hull's promotion charge. Dean Windass, aged 39. Uh, he'd scored 10 goals in around 30-odd 30, 30 leader league games into the championship playoff final against Bristol City. The ball drops out of the sky. Windass, bang, straight in the top corner. What a goal. What a contribution. Age 39. And then, doesn't bow out then, goes on, makes a few appearances in the Premier League, including coming on late in the game against Portsmouth. I've looked around. Most people said it's a Noé Pamaro own goal late in the game. <laughs> but some people have attributed it to Winder. So I'm going to, for the sake of this podcast, <laughs> and say that he got the key late equaliser against Portsmouth for Hull, which then they went on to stay up, as we know, on the last day of the season by one point. The only downside to Windass's contribution in all that time is that the keeping them in the Premier League obviously meant we had to witness Phil Brown singing Sloop John B at the end of the game. <laughs> but I won't hold that against him. Dean Windass, my golden oldie. Alison, who's your favourite veteran? Oh, it has to be Teddy Sheringham because it took me a, a long time to get to know Teddy Sheringham. He's a hard person to pin down. And yet when you do finally get him for a cup of coffee... Pin, pin or down. Pin, literally pin down. Not literally <laughs> pin down. Or over the phone. He is uh, he's so worth it. And although he is the old, he's the obvious choice because he's the oldest person to play professionally in the Premier League at age 40. But he was... He did register, register himself, and he was manager of Stevenage. He did register himself aged 49 to play for them. They didn't need to in the end, but needs must. He was prepared to do it. That's some going. And also, um, managerial stuff hasn't been his thing, but he did not lack um, seriousness and passion, and he cared for the club that gave him the job so they sacked they sacked him and instead of just going off and playing golf which is what he loves to do he went back to watch their very next game in disguise because he just wanted to work out what he'd been doing wrong and I think that's so humble to know that you've not been able to do it and you don't want everyone pointing at you when you're in the stands so he went in disguise to watch what happened unfortunately he didn't learn very much because it was uh, gale force winds so no one knew why, any, why anything happened in that match? <laughs> but um, no, he's 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 good fun and uh, wow, you know, forty in the Premier League and to still think you can play competitively, forty uh, nine's pretty good going. He was brilliant, Teddy Sheringham, absolutely brilliant. Um, I I went for Paolo Maldini. Um, I was I was at the EFL Awards last night, as you know, and the conversation directed by me got onto football man crushes mm. and Paolo Maldini's name came up funnily enough I wonder why um, long hair or short hair because mm, I saw him at a Champions League final a couple of years ago and he had short hair and it was a whole new man crush for me it was wow real dish I mean they're quite, they're, either quite way, a lot either, of them are like that Alessandro way, Nesta long hair then short hair you're like Phew, wow also this is quite the kind of trajectory isn't it from Dean Windass to Chetty Sheringham to Paolo Maldini we hadn't even planned it either that's just I'm glad you started with me put it that way I think a lot of people know about King Kazu. Um, Kazuyoshi Miura, 50 years old, still playing um, on loan at the moment at Suzuka Point Getters from Yokohama FC in Japan at the moment, 50 years old. But I had to end on the legend himself in terms of English football. So Stanley Matthews, the former Stoke Blackpool and England winger who also kept going until he was 50 years old. Sports science is changing. Do you think we will get more 40-year-old players in the Premier League? 
No, it's, it's getting harder to be not considered past it at 28, I think. Mm. Oh, really? Mm. Why is that? Because the game's faster. It's all about pace. But you've got you've got so many good older players still. You've got Ronaldo doing the job. He's only a few years away from, from 40. Um, but even the ones in their mid-30s, we've seen Benzema, Lewandowski's early 30s, but he could go on and on. Salah doesn't look like... He, I mean, I know he's only you know 30 now, but you look at his composition as an athlete, you don't see him stopping at any time soon. It, guaranteed, he'll still be a top player in five years, in my opinion, and then he can go on as far as he wants. Money could also be a factor. You've probably earned enough money these days when you're playing by the time that you're 30 that you could retire and never have to work again. Never have to go to Stevenage in disguise like Teddy did. <laughs> but um, no, I, well, I think it could. It would probably be down to managers like Jurgen Klopp, who, you know, James Milner, for example, players of that ilk who become useful squad players because they can play lots of positions. But even then, you see Milner when he plays sometimes this season. And I love James Milner. This isn't, don't, don't start a fight, Alison. But you, you have noticed, as you say, that slight half step that he's behind everyone else just because of how quick the game is, how much, how intense it is. And I think Alison's right, it, it could become more and more difficult, I'd say. Mm, interesting. OK, we'll talk about that on a future uh, episode of The Game. Um, Alison, Tom, thank you very much for being wonderful company once again. And to all of you for listening, uh, remember, if you sign up to The Times today, you can subscribe to both The Times and The Sunday Times. You will get yourself one month free. So check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Many more games to come this week. The Champions League is back. More Premier League to talk about as well. We will see you on Thursday. Thursday.